Before we start the program, I want to introduce you to an event that's coming up this August. The Loma Linda Institute of Worship is offering a worship leadership certificate to help leaders and pastors take their congregation's worship experience to the next level. This August 9-12 through 12 event will include presenters Randy Roberts, Adriana Pereira, Nicholas Zork, Wayne Buckner, Richard Hickam, and more, and provide the opportunity to perform on stage with Steve Green and the Heritage Singers. Come sing, pray, write new music, share testimonies and resources, and grow together with like-minded worship leaders from across the world. Go to LLIW.net to register. It's a tough time. That's no secret to you. Living through this COVID-19 crisis has been extremely challenging to millions of people. Maybe a bit of perspective might help. I received an email from Lon or Lonnie Josephson. It was an email that gave me some perspective. It might do the same for you. Listen to what Lon sent to me. For a small amount of perspective at this moment, imagine you were born in 1900. On your 14th birthday, World War I starts and ends on your 18th birthday. 22 million people perish in that war. Later that year, a Spanish flu epidemic hits the planet and runs until your 20th birthday. 50 million people die in those two years. Yes, 50 million. On your 29th birthday, the Great Depression begins. Unemployment hits 25%. The world GDP drops 27%. That runs until you're 33. The country nearly collapses along with the world economy. When you turn 39, World War II starts. You aren't even over the hill yet. And don't try to catch your breath. On your 41st birthday, the United States is fully pulled into World War II. Between your 39th and 45th birthdays, 75 million people perish in the war. At 50, the Korean War starts. 5 million perish. At 55, the Vietnam War begins and doesn't end for 20 years. 4 million people perish in that conflict. On your 62nd birthday, you have the Cuban Missile Crisis, a tipping point in the Cold War. Life on our planet as we know it, could have ended. Great leaders prevented that from happening. When you turn 75, the Vietnam War finally ends. Think of everyone on the planet born in 1900. How do you survive all of that? When you were a kid in 1985 and didn't think your 85-year-old grandparent understood how hard school was, well, and how mean that kid in your class was, well, Yet they survived everything we've just listed. Perspective is an amazing art. Refined as time goes on and enlightening like you wouldn't believe, let's try and keep things in perspective. Let's be smart. Help each other out. And we'll get through all of this. Well, thank you, Lon, for that email because it really does help us put things in perspective. But even with things in perspective, the truth is, it's a tough time, a deadly time. In fact, I checked the numbers just last night. Over 271,000 people have died so far in the world because of COVID-19. 
And it's not just the lives that have died. It's all those who have suffered. And it's not just the physical suffering, the deadly nature of it. It's also the reality of the economy. Fortune magazine says that 26 million Americans out of work in unemployment rising to 20%. And it's not just statistical numbers. It's mom and pop stores. It's young couples who started small businesses. It's the families that live from paycheck to paycheck whose anxiety has risen to astronomical proportions. It's a tough, tough time. So because of that tough time that we're facing, we begin today a new sermon series, a new study series, entitled simply, When. When? When life doesn't go the way you've planned it, then what? When things don't turn out the way you've prayed for, then what? When everything around you falls apart, then what? That's our series, When. Six-part series. In fact, let me just briefly outline to you what we're going to be looking at in this six-part series. We begin today with When the Bottom Falls Out. And we look at what happens when our foundations, that upon which we've built our lives, collapses. Next week, when the walls collapse. What happens when the structure, that which gives form and shape to our lives, what happens when that collapses? Then what? The following week, when the roof caves in, what happens when that which is above us, the God who is above us, doesn't respond as we believe he should? Then what? The fourth week, when the journey ends. What about when death intersects with our pathway, when it crashes into our lives and crushes our spirits? Then what? The fifth week, when backed into a corner. What about those moments when you have literally no way out, nowhere else to turn, God? Then what? And then finally, the last week, when deciding about the future. As we come out of all of this, we have to make decisions What's next? How do we approach life? Then what? So those are our six weeks. Now, as we work our way through this six-week series, we're going to approach each week with one key question. Is there a word from the Lord? And so we begin today. When the bottom falls out, is there a word from the Lord? Well, I'm happy to tell you, I'm delighted to tell you that there is a word from the Lord. And for today's word from the Lord, we turn to the book of Psalms, that ancient hymn book of ancient Israel. Psalm 60. Now, if you look at Psalm 60, you'll see that the superscription, that is the words that come right under those words, Psalm 60, the superscription that gives sometimes, not always, but sometimes gives a bit of historical context, you'll see in reading that, number one, that it's the longest superscription in any psalm in the whole hymn book, and number two, that this psalm came about during a time of battles. And if you read just the superscription, you come to the conclusion they were victorious. The people of Israel won, so it should be a great time. Maybe this will be a psalm of celebration. 
But then you begin to read the psalm, and you realize not everything was good. Not every battle was won. In fact, there is an apparent defeat here that was apparently so profound that the bottom fell out. The foundations shook. And the people weren't certain how to respond. Now, for a bit of context, I decided I wanted to share with you the words of Old Testament scholar William, William Van Gemeren. As he writes about this psalm, it gives us a bit of context for what it is that we're going to read from Scripture. Van Gemeren says this, There are sad moments in the history of the people of God. God has promised to be with His people, but in His own inscrutable wisdom, He seems to abandon them. This psalm raises the issue of divine abandonment, and challenges the godly to abandon themselves to the love and the compassion of a wise God. According to the superscription, this psalm alludes to David's, that's King David, to David's success in Aram Neharaim and in Aram Zobah and Eden, Edom. But apparently the successes were not always immediate, as this psalm is a community lament in which the people pray for God's success after an apparent defeat. It is evident that adversity has strained the covenantal relationship between God and His people. The people feel that God's temporary abandonment of them has brought them nothing but trouble. Seven verbs emphasize the divine initiation. In other words, what Van Gemeren is saying, in the original text, there are seven verbs that suggest that God has actively, on His own initiative, done something. So here are the seven verbs. Have rejected burst forth, have been angry, have shaken, torn open, have shown, have given. And Jimron continues, rejection, even though for a brief time, is serious. God's people live a meaningless existence without His presence. They take defeat seriously because divine abandonment is the most miserable condition. The psalmist likens abandonment to a state of war, to an earthquake, and to a state of intoxication. This lament is occasionally interrupted by brief prayers for relief and restoration. So there you have it. It's a psalm written in reflection of a military defeat and how that affected the nation of Israel. We're going to read it in three parts, in three stanzas, if you will. The first stanza has to do with collapsing foundations when the bottom falls out. So read with me. Psalm 60, we start reading in verse 1. We'll read through verse 5. You have rejected us, God, and burst upon us. You have been angry. Now restore us. You have shaken the land and torn it open. Mend its fractures, for it is quaking. You have shown your people desperate times. You have given us wine that makes us stagger. But for those who fear you, you have raised a banner to be unfurled against the bow. Save us and help us with your right hand, that those you love may be delivered. The psalmist draws on a number of images to portray exactly how the people of Israel are feeling. 
One image on which he draws is, is wine. It's as though in the modern vernacular, we would say we're punch drunk, like the boxer who's been hit so many times in the head, he can't walk straight. But the image that jumps out at me, the metaphor that jumps out at me that the psalmist used is that of an earthquake. You have shaken the land. It has ruptured open. It is quaking, shaking. Now, I've never lived through a big earthquake. Now, I live in Southern California. Anyone who lives here sooner or later is going to experience the shaking of the earth. So I've lived through some quaking and shaking. But nothing that I would consider to be a major earthquake. But I have discovered this. Those who have lived through such never forget it. Never. My brother John was living in the city of Guatemala, Guatemala City in Central America, when a major earthquake ravaged that country. I can remember my brother telling us it was like early in the a.m. hours in the darkness. It was like suddenly a train came roaring through my bedroom. It was a major quake. 7.5 on the Richter scale lasted 39 seconds. 39 seconds is an eternity when the ground is shaking. The conservative estimates were that 23,000 people died. The actual numbers were likely much higher. As I was studying this passage and thinking about that, I texted my brother John, and I asked him, do you remember the date of that earthquake? John's answer came back immediately, almost as he wasn't, but almost as if he had been poised on his phone to answer immediately. The answer shot straight back at me, February 4, 1976. You live through something like that, you never forget it. My wife, Anita, lived through something like that. A major earthquake that rocked, literally rocked, the country of Peru and South America. Thousands and thousands of people died. In fact, that earthquake caused what is still considered to be the largest landslide in recorded world history. So just after I texted John, I went from my study into the kitchen where Anita was, and I just, just said to her, you lived through a major earthquake when you were a child, didn't you? Just like that, she said, May 31, 1970. If you've lived through something like that, you never forget it. And that's what the psalmist says is happening to the people of Israel. The whole ground is shaking and quaking. It has been fractured open. It's still trembling. The people are devastated. The bottom has fallen out. The foundation upon which we have built, the ground upon which we have stood, is no longer dependable. Then what? What do we do when the affirmations that we have believed suddenly are thrown into question? Van Gemeren, in his statement, he said they're feeling the rejection of God. Remember his words? It's a most miserable condition. It's what we're facing now. 
I know. I know, I know. Some of you will say, come on, Randy. You're overblowing it, especially in light of all the statistics you read of the 20th century. 75 million dead in a war that lasted half a dozen years. Don't compare this to that. I, I understand. I get it. But these are serious times, tough times, and for some, deadly times. The foundation is shaking. The bottom is falling out. Then what? Take, for example, take, for example, the family. A family where she, she doesn't feel well, has a fever, body aches. No, no, it's just the flu. It's just the flu. It'll pass, but it doesn't pass. Soon there's that fiery sore throat, as though her throat is on fire. And then the test and the confirmation. And then dropping her off in front of the hospital, not even really the hospital, in front of a tent. She gets out of the car. It's the last time in person they will ever see her alive. And then there's the family not far from that first family. The family where the, the husband finally comes clean. He finally admits to his wife, yes, my, my chest has been hurting for a couple of days now. It's really tight. In fact, the, the, the pain has kind of crept up into my neck. She feels him immediately. Cold sweat. I'm taking you. No, he says. I'm not going to any hospital. COVID-19 will finish me off. Not too long after that, he collapses. Help arrives too late. But for COVID-19, he would have gotten help. But now she's at the mortuary, listening as though in a nightmare to the words, ten people or less, graveside only. What do you suppose those two families are saying? I don't know about you, but I think they're saying the bottom has fallen out. We don't know where to turn. The foundation has collapsed in our lives. And again, it's not just the illness. Think of that young couple that started. They're entrepreneurs. They started a young business. They were excited about it. In fact, they made it a matter of prayer. They wanted to do what God would have them do, but they wanted to make a difference in the world and in making a difference, provide for their own needs and that of the children they were soon to have. And then COVID-19. The economy. With, with, with tears in their eyes. With their hearts being torn apart, they had to lay off the four people they had hired. And now it seems clear. Their business won't survive. You talk to them, they'd say, the bottom has fallen out. What about the foundations? We prayed. We thought we were following God's direction for our lives. What happened? And it's not just small businesses. You've read the news. 
You've heard what's happening. Big institutions. It's hospitals, for example. Go around this state. Go around this country. Hospitals teetering on the brink of collapse. We're not immune here in Loma Linda. The realities have hit us very hard. People are saying, then what? Now, I can imagine that one of you might come to me and say, come with me, Randy, I'll take you from where you're seated right now. It won't take us 10 minutes to walk up onto the mountain. I'll show you a statue. Part of that scene in that statue is a diminutive woman named Ellen White. She was saying something in the statue, in the depiction. She is saying, this is the very place. And you may say to me, that's our foundation, Randy. And I would say it is. But times come when the foundations shake and quake. Psalm 60. You realize those people had a foundation? They had a very clear foundation. And their foundation was when God took them by the hand and took them to that little strip of land on the shores of the eastern Mediterranean Sea. And he said to them, this is the very place. It's yours. It's my mission. I will take all your enemies out of the way. And I will give you this land. And now, in the midst of defeat, the ground is quaking. The foundation is crumbling. The bottom has fallen out. No wonder. No wonder that in the section we read, the psalmist ended with these words. You remember we read them. Ended with these words, save us. And help us with your right hand, that those who love you may be delivered. So that first part ends with a cry for deliverance. Please, God, save us. Don't let the foundation collapse beneath us. Now we come to the second part, the second stanza. Now the stanza we're about to read is going to be filled with names and places and acts so in order to, to get those as we read them, I want to read you again a quote, once again, from William Van Gemeren, Old Testament scholar, to kind of set the context for what we're about to read. Here's what Van Gemeren says. In this psalm, he says, the 12 tribes of Israel are represented by the two major tribes, Ephraim and Judah. So when you read those two, that's representing all of Israel. Ephraim is called a helmet, symbolic of force. Judah is a scepter, symbolic of dominion and governance. Ephraim, Ephraim represents the northern and eastern tribes, Judah the southern tribes. Thus, all tribes share in God's rule over the nations. The Lord's authority, in the section we're about to read, the Lord's authority over the nations is symbolized by wash basin, my sandal, and a shout of victory. The picture of Moab as coming with a wash basin for the warrior to wash his feet represents Moab's subjugation to servant status. In other words, Israel will conquer. 
Edom too will be dispossessed by the victorious warrior. As is implied by the idiom, I toss my sandal. The authority of the Lord will extend from east, Moab and Edom, to west, Philistia. There is no nation from shore to shore that will not have to submit itself to the rule of God. That's what's going to happen in this second stanza. So if the first stanza finds us watching as the foundations collapse and crumble, the second stanza has us listening as God says, I am a firm foundation. God is a firm foundation. So read with me. Back to Psalm 60, this time beginning in verse 6. God has spoken from his sanctuary. In triumph I will parcel out Shechem and measure off the valley of Succoth. Gilead is mine and Manasseh is mine. Ephraim is my helmet. Judah is my scepter. Moab is my wash basin. On Edom I toss my sandal. Over Philistia I shout in triumph. Who will bring me to the fortified city, asked the psalmist. Who will lead me to Edom? Do you get what God is saying? God is saying, all these challenges, all these difficulties, all these enemies you face that are so overwhelming, that are causing the bottom to fall out of your life, you know what? (laughs) I have them under my power. I have them under my control. I'll toss my sandal on them. I'll shout in victory over them. They'll come and wash my feet. It's metaphorical ways of God saying, God is a firm foundation. You may be frightened by everything that's happening, but ultimately, God is on the throne. It may seem absolutely undoable, impossible. In fact, I point you to one line that we read that underlines how impossible it must have seemed. After God finishes speaking about the ways in which he will conquer and overcome, the ways in which he will be victorious, the psalmist says this, Who will bring me to the fortified city? Who will lead me to Edom? If I might paraphrase, God has just says, I will be victor. And the psalmist is as it is as though he's saying, well, (laughs) I don't know, because there's a fortified city that is impossible to conquer God. Impossible. It's the fortified city of Edom. The late James Montgomery Boyce was a magnificent expositor of Scripture theologian, teacher, preacher. I want to read to you James Montgomery Boyce's words about that fortified city of Edom. Listen to what he wrote years ago. There were a number of well-fortified cities in Edom, the source of the country's strength and great pride. But when David speaks of the fortified city, he can only mean one, Petra. Petra, the most inaccessible and apparently impregnable mountain stronghold of Edom. It is approached, writes Boyce, through a narrow cut in the limestone cliffs that winds inward for about two miles and is called a seek. The cliffs cliffs rise upward for hundreds of feet on both sides, and in places the passage is so narrow that no more than two horses can pass abreast. 
A handful of brave men could defend this Sikh against an army. But even if the passage could be breached, the defenders could retreat into the mountain surrounding the hidden inner valley and defend themselves from there. Only God could give victory over a fortress like that, and David knew it. So he cries to God, acknowledging, in the psalm, acknowledging that human help is worthless. That's their greatest challenge. I can relate to what Montgomery Boyce wrote because I've had the wonderful privilege, my family and I, of on at least a couple of occasions being there in Petra. The experience of walking into that seek and then walking down as the walls begin to move in, rising hundreds of feet above you, closing out, blocking out the sun. Even if it's a hot day, it cools down in the seek. And as you move hundreds and hundreds of yards deeper into the seek, the walls come closer and closer together till at one point they're less than 10 feet wide. To picture that on the other end of that seek was an army defending a fortified city is to think there's no way to get into that. Truly that is the fortified city. Truly that is impregnable. Cannot be overcome. And yet, what is God saying in this passage? On Edom, I toss my sandal. Toss my sandal. In other words, it's a statement of disrespect. They're nothing to me. I take ownership. You see, the sandal in the ancient world represented the title to a piece of land. Because you could mark out a piece of land by walking, often in a triangle. And what you could walk in a certain amount of time, that was what you could purchase, buy, or claim as your own. So a sandal became a title. So when God says, I toss my sandal on Edom, he says, mine. I control it. I am the foundation. And God is a firm foundation. This is how God is responding to those times when the foundation collapses, when the earth quakes and shakes, and when the bottom falls out. It's that promise that He's a mighty rock in a weary land, cooling shade on the burning sands, faithful guide for the pilgrim band, a shelter in the time of storm. That's God. A firm foundation. And so here we have juxtaposed in Psalm 60. On the one hand, the people saying, our foundation has collapsed. The bottom has fallen out. On the other, God saying, I'm a firm foundation. So what exactly was their foundation? It's actually quite simple. Their foundation was God's promise that this land would be theirs. That he was giving it to them. Their foundation was God's promise, I will go with you, I will be with you, I will care for you, I will bring you to a home, I will give you this promised land. That was their foundation. And that is why a military defeat over that land was so utterly devastating to them. 
The foundation has collapsed because that is the promise on which we were building. I can imagine at any time in life, but certainly at a time like this, there are those out there who would say, of your life, the bottom has fallen out. I don't know what to depend on anymore. I had given my life to Jesus. I had asked him to guide me. I had asked him to direct me. And I thought I was following his direction. And now, what do I do? How do I respond? Well, one thing I would encourage is listen to the God who says, I am a firm foundation. Place your lives in the hand of that God. Your future. But there is one other thing that we cannot miss in this psalm. If the first section we read, the first stanza, if you will, is a collapsing foundation, and if the second stanza is God saying, I am a firm foundation, then we have to ask, then what do we do as we live in the tension between those two realities? How do we respond to that? I want to read to you how the psalmist responds to it. It's a very short piece, just two verses long, but I think we find in these two verses exactly how we need to respond. So back to Psalm 60, this time verses 11 and 12. And this is the psalmist now. He quoted God earlier in second stanza, but this one now is the psalmist speaking, who who speaking to God says, praying to God says, give us aid against the enemy, for human help is worthless. With God we will gain the victory, and he will trample down our enemies. Give us aid. Do you know what the psalmist is doing? The psalmist is praying. He's praying. He's saying, God, give us aid. We need your help. You may be a firm foundation, but where we have our feet placed right now is quaking. We need your help. He's praying to God. That's how we live in the tension between these two realities, the juxtaposition of a shaking foundation and an unshakable God. We pray. Give us aid. Give us your help. We plead with God. We appeal to God. We petition God. We pray. We ask. After all, isn't that what happened in Scripture time and time and time again? Think about it. Do you remember when Solomon was dedicating the temple? It was a magnificent structure, and it was a glorious moment. And yet in Solomon's dedication and in his dedicatory prayer, He remembers that things may not always go well and that sometimes it will be the fault of the people themselves. It's not just that they're feeling abandoned by God. It's that they themselves have wandered away. Do you remember what Solomon says to do? Quoting God, If my people, God speaks, If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves 
and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. So in that interchange between Solomon and God, what are the people to do living in that tension? Pray. Pray a prayer of repentance. We could use more prayers of repentance. That's how we live between these two realities, prayer. Or what about Jesus? In the Sermon on the Mount, do you remember those well-known words? Ask, and it will be given you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened. What's Jesus saying? He's saying, pray. When you're living in that tension, pray. Or what about the book of James? James comes out and just says it clearly and directly. James says, you do not have because you do not ask. How could it be more clear than that? What's James saying? He's saying when you're uncertain, when you're caught in the tension between a shakable foundation and an unshakable God, what do you do? You ask. You pray. In fact, thinking about the words of James reminded me of the words of Ellen White. Just one sentence from the book Great Controversy, 525. One sentence. Doesn't this align with exactly what James was saying? It is part of God's plan to grant us, in answer to the prayer of faith, that which he would not bestow, did we not thus ask? It is part of God's plan to grant us, in answer to the prayer of faith, that which he would not bestow, did we not thus ask? What was it that James said? You don't have because you don't ask. In other words, when living in the tension between shakable foundations and an unshakable God. Spend your time in prayer, in asking. I love the statement from Philip Yancey. This is from his book on prayer. Listen to his words. If prayer stands as the place, it's that tension between the two, if prayer stands as the place where God and human beings meet, then I must learn about prayer. Most of my struggles, says Yancey, in the Christian life circle around the same two themes. Most of my struggles, he says, have to do with one of these two themes. What are the two themes? Yancey's words again. Why God doesn't act the way we want God to act and why I don't act the way God wants me to act. Prayer is the precise point where those themes converge. Why doesn't God act the way I want him to act? And God asking me, why don't you act the way I want you to act? And Yancey says, prayer. That's what brings those two together. Again, a shakable foundation, an unshakable God. What do we do? We live in the tension through prayer. That's exactly what the psalmist does. Give us aid against our enemy. Whether our enemy is ancient Edom 
or modern-day COVID-19 or the economy or job loss or illness or disappointment or loneliness or whatever our enemy might be. God, give us aid against the enemy. That's how we live when the bottom falls out. That's the word of God to us when the foundations shake. We come in prayer. God, please be with us. God, please heal us. God, please walk with us. God, please come and get us and take us home.